0: chapter 4, verse 11, to the end of the chapter. It says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Seeing, then, that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Join me in prayer, please. Lord God, your grace is so abundant. Your grace, your undeserved love, your unmerited favor, however we want to define it, it's, it's more than we can explain. So Lord, I ask please that you send your Holy Spirit down to fill our hearts and our souls. This morning as we listen to Pastor Jackie, Lord God, thank you. Thank you so much for all your blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Isn't God good? Man. God is. We, we come this morning and we look at a section of Scripture so uh, encouraging that the Lord gives us grace in time of need. And that concept of the grace that God gives us in time of need, hinges on two promises. One, the promise of an eternal rest. And second, the promise of a great high priest. And as we kind of tie these ideas together that we've been looking at since uh, since last week, um, we want to remember. Remember in in chapter 4, verse 9, let's just back up a little bit. It says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For He... Who has entered his rest, has himself also ceased from his work, as God did from his. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished, right? He didn't say, I'm almost done, almost complete, in a little while, if you guys help me out a little bit, we'll, we'll be able to finish this. No, he said, it is finished, right? Just as Jesus said, it is finished, our salvation is Is complete in Him. Our salvation being complete in Him. Also lays out for us that you and I. We are complete in Him. I'm not complete any other way. I'm not complete because I'm uh, married to Kathy. I'm not complete because of anything else that's going on in my life. I'm complete because of Jesus Christ. If your completion comes some other way. You're missing out. And the warnings that the scripture lays out for us are for you we are complete in jesus christ in colossians chapter two verse nine it says this for in him dwells all the fullness of the godhead bodily in jesus christ dwells all the fullness of the godhead bodily he is fully god and you are complete in him Uh, does it get any plainer than that that's pretty plain, right? Jesus is God of very God. In Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead. And you, me, we, are complete in Him. Look at the Scripture goes on to say. Him, Jesus Christ, who is the head of how much principality and power? All, right? So He's on the top. He's on the top. In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What was it that, that Jesus asked of the nation of Israel? When the scribes and the Pharisees were hanging all their hopes on their culture. On the reality that, you know, we're, we're Jews. We're born Jews. You know, we're sons of Abraham. You know, Jesus over and over. God would tell, speak to the nation of Israel and tell them, Don't put your hope in circumcision. Your circumcision doesn't need to be A circumcision of the flesh, it needs to be what? A circumcision of the heart. And here in Colossians, Paul's saying that's what we have in Christ, right? We're complete in Him. He circumcised our heart. He makes our heart, our heart sought, available, able to receive. He says in verse 12, buried with Him in baptism, (coughs) excuse me, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God. Who raised Him from the dead. So, He circumcised our heart, and we died to our old life, and we were raised anew. Right? That's the picture of baptism. I died to the old. I'm being raised into new life. So, and you being dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So we're forgiven. We have redemption Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. But Jesus finished it, and we need to enter into that rest. We want to enter into that. How do we enter into that? We've we've talked about it the last couple of weeks. So just so we can remember, in Ephesians chapter one, we have what is called a bracha. It's a it's a sentence of blessing. And in this sentence of blessing, Paul goes on for 13 verses without a period. That's a long sentence, right, for all you English teachers? Usually you're not looking for sentences like that. Paul is famous for them. But I want you to hear what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, past tense, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's two little words after that. He has, in the past tense, blessed us with every spiritual blessing, where? In Christ. Where is every spiritual blessing found? In Christ. Where are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? In Christ. Over and over and over again, we see this phrase, in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him. Are you with me? So, a lot of people want to talk about the concept of election. God chose. He did choose. Who did He choose? Where? In Christ. God chose us where? In Christ. If you're in Christ, you're chosen. If you're not in Christ, you're not. You want to become chosen, what do you got to do? You got to be in Christ. Because God chose all who are in Christ. He chose all who are in Christ. It's, it's the, the vehicle, the purpose, the plan. God chose to save all who are in Christ before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. What's he mean? God predestined all those who are in Christ to be adopted. If you're in Christ, what has begun will be finished, right? Because Jesus finished the work. So what's the key? How do we tie in? How do we be a part of this work? we got to be in Christ. And if we're in Christ, what are we? Elect. And if we're elect, what are we? Predestined. It's all in Romans chapter 8. If we're chosen, we're predestined. That means God, what he starts, he's going to finish. Don't make it complicated. It don't have to be complicated. If God starts something, he finishes something. So it says he's going to start, he's going to finish it. He's going to bring us into adoption. That we would be sons. That word is the same as heir. Heir. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to be little born children. It means that we're going to be heirs. By Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. To the praise of the glory of whose grace? His grace. Because who did all the work? He did. I wasn't on the cross. Who was on the cross? Jesus. And He said on the cross it is finished. Right? He's accomplished the work. He has accomplished the work. It is finished. To the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted where? In the beloved. So in Christ we're accepted. In Christ, we're accepted. Man, these are incredible blessings, right? In Him, we have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of sin. Where do we have redemption? In Christ. Out of Christ, do we have redemption? Nope, you got to be in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're not forgiven. You have redemption and forgiveness where? In Christ. In Christ, we have these things. According to the riches of whose grace? His grace, right? It's according to His grace, which He made to abound toward us, In all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in who? In Christ. So what is he saying? saying, before the foundation of the world, God had a plan that everyone in Christ would be saved. Before the foundation of the world, elect before the foundation of the world, God chose, God chose, all in Christ will be saved. Both which are in heaven and which are in earth, where? In him. Verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Where's our inheritance? And we have an inheritance outside of Christ? Okay, our inheritance is in Christ. Uh, we have an, obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be the praise of His glory. Listen, this is the important part. In Him you also trusted when? After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom uh, also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. He calls us to enter into the rest. How do we get into his rest? In Christ. How do we get into Christ? We hear the word of God. We believe the word of the gospel. We put our trust in Jesus Christ. And now you are where? In Christ. And if you're in Christ, what are you? Elect, chosen, predestined. All those blessings. Redemption. uh, uh, All the things that he talked about. Forgiveness of our sins. All of that is found where? In Christ. How do we get in Christ? We hear the word, we believe the gospel, we put our trust in Jesus Christ, and we are in Christ. So as he's laying out this idea of entering into that rest, he says there were 600,000 men who left Egypt and only two entered into his rest. That's the example he's given us. That's the warning that he lays out for us. So what is he telling us? There is a diligence needed. There's a diligence needed. Listen, Hebrews four one. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear. First thing, let us fear, lest any of you seem to fall short of it. What's he saying to us? He's telling us, you've got to take this seriously, being in Christ. You take that seriously? Is that... A matter of great import to you, or is that just something that, that somewhere in the back of your mind on a back burner someplace, you know, yeah, there there was this thing that 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 happened long ago, but it's not really anything of import. Because what he's calling us to hear is say, Hey man, we need to take it seriously. We need to take it seriously. He's already warned us in the book of Hebrews, all the way up to chapter four, not to neglect our great salvation, right? Don't neglect it. He's already warned us to beware of drifting. Just drifting away. All of these are pictures of not doing something that the book of Revelation, the book of Hebrews, and throughout the word of God were called to do. What is that? Hold fast to Jesus Christ. Hold on. Lay a hold. Hold fast. Don't coast. Don't cruise. But But make it something that is... Deliberate, Literally, what he's telling us is, be deliberate about entering into his rest. Be deliberate about your salvation. Not lackadaisical. You want to be lackadaisical about your salvation, that's the church of Laodicea. What did God say about them? I'm going to puke them out. Our goal should never be, I want to be vomit, right? Is it? We don't usually think that way, right? So, if I don't want to be then I need to be deliberate about my relationship with Christ. That's the warning that the writer of Hebrews is telling us. Be deliberate. Not lackadaisical, but deliberate. Not that somehow we earn it, but that it matters to us to the point that we recognize how it is I enter into Christ. And I take that seriously. In verse 11, he gives us the next let us. Look what it says. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. He doesn't call us to apathy. He calls us to diligence. Be deliberate about your salvation. And he warns us, there's a danger, right? There's a danger of what? Of not entering into the rest. There's a danger of not enter- entering into the rest because we never really took it serious. We never really applied we never really said yeah you know what i need to make christ the center of my life that it matters to me that it, that it makes a difference to me he says don't fall by the same example what was their example unbelief that led to what disobedience disobedience people always want to trip on the concept of i'm not saved by works you're right you're not saved by works but what's james tell us your faith is seen how yeah he said faith without works is what Dead, dead faith saves, dead faith don't save, living faith saves. So, so what does that mean? It means if I don't believe God, I will stumble and fall into disobedience. I will stumble and fall into disobedience, just like the children of Israel did, right? 600,000 went, only two, only two made it, only two entered in. So we don't want to do that. We want to enter into this, this incredible salvation that God has for us. So what does he tell us? He says, okay, we want to be diligent. So what's the very next thing he goes in, in verse 12, you have the word for, which is the same as using the word because. So, okay, let's be diligent. Let's, let's enter into that rest. Let's take it seriously. Let's not fall because of disobedience. And then immediately he says, because the word of God, for the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and it's a discerner <coughs> of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. So the next thing he goes to, be diligent, is the importance of God's word. The importance of God's word. He says God's word, the first word he gives us for it, is it's what? Living. Living. God's word is not dead. God's word is alive. It is alive over and over again the word declares us Acts 7:38. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. Listen, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, the living word. In the Old Testament, described as a living word, this is what's being described by Stephen in Acts 7.38. In 1 Peter 1.23, it says, Of us having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which, what? Lives and abides forever. So God's word is alive. It is alive. It is important. It is important for our, because we want our life to be Living. The Bible tells us faith comes by hearing what? And hearing the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God is living and it brings forth faith in our life. Next we're told the Word of God is powerful. The Word of God accomplishes things. Probably most of us somewhere in this room have a story about the Word of God accomplishing a change in our life. That I'm not who I was by the power of God's Word. Isaiah 55.11 says this, So shall my Word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So when God's Word goes forth, does it do anything? A lot of times, people will ask and And I know sometimes Bill, when Bill's out at Planned Parenthood and he can't get anybody to talk to him, he'll just stand there and start reading the Word. And people say, well, is there any value to that? Yeah, the Word of God is living and powerful. It's going. It's going to accomplish what it's sent to accomplish. We have to be, men and women, willing to speak that Word, that powerful Word, into our life. What's the next thing we're told? It's sharper right? Sharper than any two-edged sword. And when it refers to the two-edged sword, we see it come up over and over again in scripture. Probably one of the best ways to consider it is like a scalpel, even though a scalpel's not two-edged. The idea of the two-edged sword, the word for sword here is a small, short sword that the Romans used that they conquered the world with. Rather than the big, heavy weapon, they could carry a sword and a shield, and they were precise. That is precise. It's sharp. It is able to divide. It's not referencing the destructive power, but it's referencing the, the division that the Word of God is able to accomplish in the lives of believers. In Isaiah 49.2, he says, He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft in his quiver. He has hidden me, saying he has made me a sharp sword. When God's prophets would speak, what was the purpose? To divide usually what's going on in the lives of God's people compared to what should be going on in the lives of God's people. To divide from the good... And the bad, to divide. In fact, he's going to build on that idea in the rest of the verse, isn't he? The Bible tells in Revelation one sixteen that Jesus Christ, in his right hand, he had seven stars out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword. Out of his mouth, his word. He is called God the Word, or the Word of God. It is able to divide. The next adjectives that we see, <coughs> sharper than any two-edged sword, Piercing. It is able to pierce. The Word of God can go through any front. There's nothing that of which the Word of God cannot penetrate. The Word of God will pierce. It will go in. It is going to be able to dive in. Piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit. So the Word of God can go through any front. Two points that we want to bring out of this piercing. It can distinguish between the psychological and the spiritual. And it can declare what is on the inside. It can distinguish between the psychological and the spiritual. You know, we can't do that. Where does the soul stop and the spirit start? Nobody knows. They can fill the the libraries of the world with books on how you might be able to figure it out. But the word for soul is the word psyche. Sound familiar? It's the same word from which we get psychology or the to understand the makeup, how a man or how a being, how mankind functions. We used to think it was the mind, but you know it's not that, right? You know they've done some incredible experiences where the, the top of a head has been lifted off and they know which areas of the brain to probe. So they, 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 they probe an area of the brain, they can move your arm. They probe an area of the brain, they can move your legs. And they tell you, the you that we're talking about, the, the psychological you, the you of your mind, the you who thinks, the you who doesn't live in your brain, that's somewhere else. The brain is physical. Your psyche that's someplace else. You can think, I'm not going to move my arm, don't want to move my arm, don't want to move my arm, and they probe your brain and your arm moves. There's also other times we see men and women who have been in accidents who in their mind, in their soul, their psyche, they want to move. But now the physical part doesn't work anymore, right? The Word of God pierces into a man and can discern the difference between the psyche, your soul, and your spirit. Remember earlier we read the scripture said that you were dead in your trespasses. The spirit of man is dead until the quickening, the life-giving power of Jesus Christ enters into a man, at which point the spirit becomes alive. And it's the word of God that can tell the difference, that can tell us, that can distinguish between the two between the psyche and the pneuma, the soul and the spirit. It can work on both. That's the point he's making. That the word of God is so sharp, it can be put, driven into a man, and defied the soul from the spirit, and thereby work on each. What's needed for the psyche, what's needed for the numa, the spirit. God's word can see them see them both and it can declare what's on the inside it can divide between the joints right so the it knows it knows how to get between the joints it knows how to get to the marrow of the bone it goes through the joint so you can get to the joint you can divide bones in the joint but it's not just seeing that it goes further than that it can go all the way into the marrow. You and I, we can't get that far, can we? But the Word of God can get so deep into you, not only will it divide at your joints, but it will tell you what's going on in the marrow of your bone. That means what's really happening on the inside of you. And we want to be... We want to be focused on entering into that rest. We want to be moving with with a, a desire to see these things fulfilled in our life, So as, as we do it, how do we do it? We do it with the Word of God. Why? Because it can divide between the soul and the spirit. It can affect my psyche, the weird feelings I got, the unforgiveness I'm battling with, the struggles that are going on in my mind. And it can also speak to the spirit and help my spirit to be quickened and alive and strengthened. It can divide the joints, the parts of my body that are supposed to be hinged together and it can look not only at the joint but in the marrow to find out what's wrong deep inside. That's what the Word of God does. So if we want to be focused, if we want to be serious about entering into the rest that God has for us, if we want to do that, then we want to do it by rightly dividing the Word of God. We want to have that deliberate attitude You know, David, in Psalm 51, he said this in verse 6, Behold, you desire, speaking to God, you desire truth, where? In my inward parts. You desire truth in the marrow. You desire truth deep inside. And where is it that God is able to affect that? Through the word of God. Why? Because it's, Sharper than any two-edged sword. It's like a surgical instrument that can go, pierce into you, divide soul from spirit, joints, and marrow. God's word gets deep. The next adjective that he uses is the word discerning. It is a discerner, right? It says the discerner of the thoughts and the intent of our heart. Do you know your heart? Because God's word says you don't. God's word says, Your heart is wicked and broken and messed up, and no man can know it, he says. But then God says, But I know the heart. I know what's going on inside. The word of God is a discerner, a discerner of what's happening in. That word discerner means it's a critic, it's a discerner of my thoughts. And that word for thought is an interesting word. That word for thought is a is a word of inward reason. But reason's kind of soft because really it's a strong feeling or passion. And usually it's the idea of of evil. So it's a strong, passionate, inward thought about somebody else. God says, I'm a critic of that. I see how you think about each other. I see the thoughts that you have. Are they hidden from him? Is there anything we can hide from God? So he's saying, look, I know, and I'm going to discern, I'm going to criticize, I'm going to, through the word of God, be able to point out when your thoughts are broken. It's not too hard to understand, is it? If we're broken people, that our thoughts would be broken? And God, through his word, is able to discern that. But not only is he a discerner or a critic of our thoughts, he's also a critic of our what? intense Like, why did you do that? Why? What's my motivation? What's behind these things that I feel and see and struggle with? What's going on? God says, I'm a critic of that. Through the word of God, he is able to, to not only divide in the soul and in the In the spirit, not only to to go down between the joints and the marital, what's deep inside, but even the thoughts. And the motivation, the inward purpose or design that we have. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, this is what he calls us to. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and then what? Lean not in your own understanding. And the Word of God will point out, when we're wrapped up in our own understanding, we have... Twisted or weird thoughts about others or our intents, our purposes and designs are out of whack. God's Word will do that. Look, be deliberate about entering into the rest that God has for you. And we can be deliberate by what? Taking the Word of God and applying it in our life. Say, I'm going to allow the Word of God to do the work it needs to do inside of me. Because the Word of God doesn't come so that I can bring the Word of God to the 21st century. The Word of God comes so that it can correct me. Me. It's my mirror. The one I need to look at. It's not your flashlight. It's my mirror. So that I can first deal with the log in my own eye. Right? Before I try to take the speck out of my brothers. Right? The Word of God. We want to see the Word of God doing these things in our life. And then he goes on. Not only do we see the importance of the Word of God and how the Word of God can equip us to be deliberate about entering into the rest, but also he tells us that he displays all things. Look at verse thirteen. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. So how many how many ways can we hide from God? Yeah, that doesn't work, right? Can I hide from you? Look, you only get to see what I want you to see. Sometimes you think, Oh, I can't believe Jackie wanted me to see that. <laughs> I'm not even gonna go there. I thought of about three other things to go off of that, and I just don't think I want you to see that part. So we but it's it's with one another, we see only what we want others to see, right? We we only show, but, but with God, yeah, there's there's he sees it all right he sees it all there's no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account so there's two things in this verse he's really focused on god's omniscience he knows everything right he knows it all he knows what you're thinking he knows what you're doing and he sees it all is there anywhere i can hide from him the psalmist said in psalm 139 verse 7 where can i go from your spirit Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If my if I make my bed in hell, that word there is sheol, it's the grave. I make my bed in the grave, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, I fly off and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will fall on me, even the night will be light around me. Indeed, the darkness cannot hide me from you. But the night shines like the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Is there anywhere we can hide from God? Nope, he sees all. He sees it all. He sees it all. But then, not only does he talk about God's omniscience, but then he, he talks about our accountability. What does he say? Look at that next part of the verse. He says, but all things are naked and open. The idea of naked is there's nothing hiding us from God. Nothing that can separate us from his vision. He can see everything. And the word open, the word open is the word that they would use for the sacrifice as they lifted the chin of the sacrifice and exposed its neck. You're open. Your neck is exposed to God. You're naked, nothing hiding you from. Be deliberate about this salvation. Don't neglect this great salvation. Why? Because all things are naked and open. Before whom? The God to which we must give account. Right? Be deliberate about your salvation. Be serious about your relationship with Jesus Christ, not apathetic. But deliberate, letting the Word of God do the work that the Word of God wants to do in your life, being being active and, and working in our lives, because one day we're going to stand before God and there's nothing we can hide. There's not some special clothes I can put on where God won't be able to see. And when I stand before the great judge, I stand with my neck exposed. Before the only one in all the universe who has the right. If I was doing that with a man. I can promise you. I would make sure. That I was deliberate. About our relationship. Kathy and I always talk about this idea in marriage. Where (coughs) a husband and wife need to learn to be open. And we use that exact picture. Of exposing your jugular. You ever watch two dogs playing? And one dog establishing dominance. Maybe it looks a little bit rough, but one of the dogs will always get on its back and do what? It opens up his neck. And the other dog, he, he'll put his mouth over the neck, but he, he shows, you can trust me because he don't rip it out. The picture of submission, the picture of being open... Look, I don't know how open you want to be like that with another human being. But you better learn to be that open with God. Because what you're going to do is deceive yourself. And deceiving yourself is not helpful, right? Is it? Do we want to be open before God? Look, I honestly and truly believe. I deserve hell. But Christ makes me serious about my relationship with Him. Because otherwise I stand before a holy God, a defiled man with his neck open, waiting for what is earned. So I want to come to that place in Christ. Because God chose before the foundation of the world that everyone in Christ was going to be saved. So being in Christ is kind of an important place to be, right? Being in Him. And if I'm in Christ, I want to do the things that Christ calls me to, right? I don't want to make excuses. Because I want to take seriously that relationship. Not that I'm earning anything. I'm just, in reality, putting shoes on my faith. Putting choose on my faith. And there's so many ways we do that in life all the time. All the time. When you're a parent, you have tried to teach this lesson to your kids a thousand times. Look, if you'll just believe me that this person is not good for you. And it's going to take you down a destructive path. How do I know whether or not they believe me? When they're willing to obey. But so often, what's the case? We like to go to the school of hard... Yeah. Why do we like to do that? Because we don't believe. We don't trust. Oh, no. You know what? Really, my dad's trying to stop me from having all the fun he had. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, I, sometimes it just blows my mind the pictures people have I tell <clears throat> I tell my boys man don't don't have sex before marriage well come on dad you did yeah it worked out great for me the whole HIV thing you know what, that's, I'm trying to spare you from the pain and the hurt how about I'm 50 how old am I now I'm 52 years old, and I bet you I can count on, on my hands the amount of nights I haven't regretted uh, being a part of two abortions. You think that just goes away? You think every time you look into a child's face, you just go, you don't think about it no more? What, what was all that fruit from? I didn't believe what God said. Yeah, God said, don't do this. It's going to bring hurt and pain and destruction into your life. Oh, come on. God's just trying to keep me from having fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. The wages of sin is? How many times? Yeah. Just because it don't come home to roost immediately... Don't mean it ain't coming. How do I know that I have faith in God? I believe what he says. I say, you know what? It's enough for me. What's the one thing God wants more than anything else? He says in the book of Hebrews, without faith it is impossible to please God. That means if you don't trust him, if you won't believe him, you can't please him. He's pleased when we believe, take seriously entering into this rest that we have in Christ. Make it deliberate. Does that mean I'm going to be perfect? No. But there's a difference between somebody who's trying to do the right thing to, compared to somebody who says, I don't need to do any of that. Isn't there? I'm a broken man trying to go where God wants me to go. And in my wake, there's a big old mess. But I thank God that he has grace to help in time of need. That's where we're headed. He's saying, look, I want you to be deliberate. I want you to apply my word. And I want you to trust me on the things that I tell you. So remember, I told you, entering into this rest is based on two things. The promise of eternal rest and the promise of... Of the great high priest. So what if I'm not perfect? What if, I, what if I don't can't measure up? Well that's exactly where we go next. Look at verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. Who has passed through the heavens. Jesus the son of God. Let us hold fast. Well we haven't seen that word enough have we? Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast. Man, we have a great high priest. He tells us that Jesus Christ is our high priest. In Hebrews 3.1, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Later on, he's going to say, Put your eyes on Jesus, man. He's that high priest. Keep your eyes on him and just keep moving forward can't go back. Right? I can't go back. I can't undo choices I made. I can't unsay words I've said. I can't unthink thoughts I've had. What can I do? Put my eyes on Christ and move forward. Put my eyes on Christ and move forward. Man, he says, seeing we have a great high priest. First thing he describes him as. We lay out this idea that he has entered into heaven. He's passed through the heavens. He's incomparable. There's no other high priest like Him. You know how many high priests the Bible ever called great? None. Jesus is the only one. So He's incomparable. Nobody else can compare to Him. He's an intercessor for us, right? Now not what the Word declares? In Romans 8, 34, it says this. Who is He who condemns It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen. He's passed into the heavens for us. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Man, he's incomparable. Nobody else like him. He's an intercessor for you and me. So when we're saying, man, I want to take seriously this this great salvation. I want to really be able to enter into this rest. I know that I have help. In Christ, He do not expect me to be perfect. He doesn't expect me to have it all worked out, but He does expect me to have my nose headed in the right direction and to receive from Him the great high priest, the incomparable one, the one who's praying for me, making intercession for me. Who is He? Jesus, the Son of God. You know, the Bible never calls Jesus the little born one, that's always how we see the word Son. Little born one, the little born one of God. No, that's not what it means. That word, huios, the word for son means heir. Jesus, the heir of God. The heir of God. (coughs) He is the ultimate. We know who he is, right? Who's our high priest? Is he incomparable? Yeah, he's the greatest one. Is he interceding? Is he praying for you and I? See, a minute ago we're thinking, man, I can't do it, I can't do it. But now you need to know you have a great high priest who's praying for you. Who's empowering you. Who wants to encourage you. And you know who he is. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one that we hold to. So what's our instruction? Seeing then that you have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Who's incomparable, who intercedes, who is Jesus Christ. You need to hold fast. Doesn't that seem like a common theme we're working through in the book of Hebrews? Is it a common theme in the book of Revelation? Absolutely. Is it a common theme throughout the Gospels? Sure is. Hold fast. Man, you laid hold of the promise that God has for you. You take seriously your relationship with Jesus Christ. And above all things, you make sure you're in Him. Because if you're in Him, you've been chosen before the foundation of the world. If you're in Him, you're predestined to arrive at your destination. Because in Christ only arrives where in Christ is going. And in Christ is going to stand before the Father and present the redeemed. A plan... That God made before the foundation of the world through Jesus Christ. To save all who would come into Christ. Entering into Christ. He is high priest. We need to hold fast. Hold on to our confession. What did you confess? Well, the Bible says you have to confess Jesus Christ. You have to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart God. raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. Is Jesus Christ Lord? Hold fast to that confession. Is he your king? Hold fast to that confession. Hold fast. We don't need another king, right? We got a king. We got a king. We, the church, just need to learn to be obedient to our king. Take seriously the relationship we say we have with him. Be, be um, <coughs> serious about what it is we're trying to accomplish in Christ. We want to arrive exactly where Jesus Christ says he will take us. So what's his experience? Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. I want you to think about this. What's he saying? Jesus Christ felt what we feel And faced what we face. You ever think about that? He felt what we feel. And he faced what we face. So you have a high priest who can sympathize. With the strength that we don't have. We have a high priest who can sympathize with the difficulty of the battle. He sympathizes with our weakness. Our lack of ability or strength. He felt that. He felt what we felt. And he faced what we faced. He was in all points tempted as yet, as we are. In all ways tempted as we are. I'll settle a, a theological dispute for you. If you want to argue with me, come tomorrow morning at to coffee. You can argue with me until you get tired. <laughs> Jesus could not sin. There's endless theological argument. Oh, well, if he had to be able to sin... In order for there to be a temptation, let me ask you a question: Which is more intense, the temptation or the sin? Man, Jesus, the, Jesus endured every temptation; and he didn't fall. All I know is when I'm trying, when I'm being tempted, and I'm resisting sinning, it's intense. Once I give in, boop, I well, was easy. So he felt everything I feel. He faced everything I face. Yet without sin, perfect. The Bible declares to us in Hebrews 6.18. By two immutable things, two unchangeable truths. What is it? For God it is impossible to lie. You cannot say that Jesus could lie. And say for God it was impossible for him to lie. Jesus could not sin. He's God. He could not sin. But he could be tempted. He could feel the same temptation we feel. He could feel the weakness of his flesh. That's what the word's declaring. So he's a high priest that can sympathize with us, that wants to help us, that wants to encourage us. So what's his encouragement? Look at verse 16. So let us, therefore, there's the third let us. Remember, first he starts with let us fear lest we come short. Let us be diligent, serious about. That relationship, uh, unless we fail like those others uh, through disobedience who failed. Now what's he say? Now let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Who's your king? Now let us come boldly to the throne of grace. For what purpose? That we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So where do we go? The throne of grace. How do we go? Boldly, man. We don't got to be shy or afraid. He's a loving high priest who can sympathize with our failures. We don't have to be afraid. We can come boldly. In our acceptance, the throne, it's the throne literally, the throne of the grace. The grace of God. And what's the purpose for which we come? Pardon? Would he come? We come to the throne of grace for what? Mercy. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. He gives me a pardon. I deserve hell. I am a wicked, sinful man. Apart from Christ, only expectation could be hell. So I come boldly before the throne of grace, and the first thing He gives me is a pardon. He gives me mercy. Mercy. Why? Because He's a good high priest, a faithful high priest, who's praying for me and pulling for me, who made a plan before the foundation of the world that all who were willing to get in Christ would be elect, chosen, redeemed, forgiven, Saved all who would get in Christ. So when we come boldly before the throne of grace, he gives us a pardon and we obtain mercy. And then he also gives us provision. Because you know what? Tomorrow's coming. What do you reckon I'm going to do tomorrow? I don't know. I'm going to do something dumb. I'm pretty sure if it's sunny and I'm on the Harley, I'm going to speed. I'm going to pass somebody like I shouldn't. The other day, I was leaving the, the coffee shop. I went over to the coffee shop, had a meeting with Wima. I, I, why am I? Is this confession time? What's it? I'm leaving the coffee shop, and you know, it just sounds better when it's louder. So I just get on a little bit, and I was doing Speedway right down the middle of. Brock- oh, where's Rusty? No, it wasn't me. Yeah, I'm gonna mess up. I'm gonna do dumb stuff. I'm gonna, speaking of dumb stuff. No, don't worry, honey. I'm not gonna tell nobody. <coughs> Oh, yeah, I can only go so far. Tomorrow, we're going we're gonna to mess up. So what is the provision that he's given us? Grace. To do what? To help. When? In time of need. Yeah, he gives us grace in t- to help. That word help is like a word that, that is, is uh, shouting and screaming and crazy like, I'm, I'm going under the water, help me. You ever feel like that? Man. And what is it that he gives us then? He says, you know what? I knew you are just a mess up. Every time I told you to be serious about this salvation, I told you to take it seriously and be focused on it, and you're just messing up. So you know what? I'm done. Is that what it says? What's he ask of me? That I have my nose pointed the right direction. What's he say? I'll give you grace to help you. When you're struggling, when you're blowing it, when you're messing up, when you're making bonehead decisions, when you're going the wrong direction. He says, I'll give you grace. I'll give you unmerited favor. I'll give you what you don't deserve. I'll give you grace so you can make it. You get what God's saying here? He's warning us to take it seriously. He's telling us don't be lackadaisical. Don't be lukewarm. Be focused. Be moving forward. Be doing the things that God wants us to do. And then he says, I want you to come to my throne. And I want you to come to that throne of grace where I'm going to give you a pardon. Where I'm going to say, just as if you never done it. And you come to that throne and I'm going to give you grace so you can make it tomorrow. And I'm going to give you more grace the next day. And I'm going to give you more grace the next day. Why? Because the grace is according to my riches? What's the grace according to? His riches. How much does he have? Man, that's good news, right? It's good news. Hey, it's a heavy warning. Be serious. But there's provision. I'm going to give you what you need to make it. You be serious. And I'm going to give you what you need to make it. Isn't that good news? Man, that's the kind of good news we need, isn't it? Because if you watch the news today, you're going to go, Oh, dear Lord, we're never going to make it. (laughs) But he says, hey, I got grace to help in time of need. He'll give us the strength, right? We just keep moving forward. Fight the good fight. Keep kicking the darkness till it bleeds the light. Amen? Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.